0: Section twenty four of Inca Lands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Inca Lands by Hiram Bingham. Chapter fourteen. Part two. We were anxious to make an early start for Conservidayoc, but it was first necessary for our Indians to prepare food for the ten days journey ahead of them guzman's wife and i suppose the wives of our other carriers spent the morning grinding chuño frozen potatoes with a rocking stone pestle on a flat stone mortar and parching or toasting large quantities of sweet corn in a terra-cotta olla with chuño and tostado the body of the sheep and a small quantity of coca leaves the indians professed themselves to be perfectly contented of our own provisions we had so small a quantity that we were unable to spare any however it is doubtful whether the indians would have liked them as much as the food to which they had long been accustomed toward noon all the indian carriers but one having arrived and the rain having partly subsided we started for we were told that it would be possible to use the mules for this day's journey san fernando our first stop was seven leagues away far down in the densely wooded pampaconas valley leaving the village we climbed up the mountain back of guzman's hut and followed a faint trail by a dangerous and precarious route along the crest of the ridge the rains had not improved the path our saddle mules were of little use we had to go nearly all the way on foot owing to cold rain and mist we could see but little of the deep canyon which opened below us and into which we now began to descend through the clouds by a very steep zigzag path four thousand feet to a hot tropical valley below the clouds we found ourselves near a small abandoned clearing passing this and fording little streams we went along a very narrow path across steep slopes on which maize had been planted finally we came to another little clearing and two extremely primitive little shanties mere shelters not deserving to be called huts and this was san fernando the end of the mule trail there was scarcely room enough in them for our six carriers it was with great difficulty we found and cleared a place for our tent although its floor was only seven feet square there was no really flat land at all. At 8.30 p.m., August thirteenth, 1911, while lying on the ground in our tent, I noticed an earthquake. It was felt also by the Indians in the nearby shelter, who from force of habit rushed out of their frail structure and made a great disturbance, crying out that there was a temblor. Even had their little thatched roof fallen upon them, as it might have done during the stormy night which followed, they were in no danger. But, being accustomed to the stone walls and red-tiled roofs of mountain villages, where earthquakes sometimes do very serious harm, they were greatly excited. The motion seemed to me to be like a slight shuffle from west to east, lasting three or four seconds, a gentle rocking back and forth, with eight or ten vibrations. Several weeks later, near Huatquina, we happened to stop at the Kolpani Telegraph office. The operator said he had felt two shocks on August 13th one at five o'clock, which had shaken the books off his table and knocked over a box of insulators standing along a wall which ran north and south. He said the shock which I had felt was the lighter of the two. During the night it rained hard, but our tent was now adjusting itself to the dry season and we were more comfortable. Furthermore, camping out at ten thousand feet above sea level is very different from camping at six thousand feet this elevation similar to that of the bridge of san miguel below machu picchu is on the lower edge of the temperate zone and the beginning of the torrid tropics sugar cane peppers bananas and grenadillas grow here as well as maize squashes and sweet potatoes none of these things will grow at pampaconas the indians who raise sheep and white potatoes in that cold region come to san fernando to make chacras or small clearings the three or four natives whom we found here were so alarmed by the sight of brass buttons that they disappeared during the night rather than take the chance of having a silver dollar pressed into their hands in the morning from san fernando we sent one of our gendarmes back to pampaconas with the mules our carriers were good for about fifty pounds apiece half an hour's walk brought us to vista Alegre, another little clearing on the alluvial fan in the bend of the river the soil here seemed to be very rich in the chakra we saw corn stalks eighteen feet in height near a gigantic tree almost completely enveloped in the embrace of a matopalo or parasitic fig tree this clearing certainly deserves its name for it commands a charming view of the green pampaconas valley opposite us rose abruptly a heavily forested mountain whose summit was lost in the clouds a mile above To circumvent this mountain the river had been flowing in a westerly direction. Now it gradually turned to the northward. Again we were mystified, for by Raimondi's map it should have gone southward. We entered a dense jungle, where the narrow path became more and more difficult for our carriers. Crawling over rocks, under branches, along slippery little cliffs, on steps which had been cut in earth or rock, over a trail which not even dogs could follow unassisted, slowly we made our way down the valley owing to the heat humidity and the frequent showers it was mid-afternoon before we reached another little clearing called pakaipata here on a hillside nearly a thousand feet above the river our men decided to spend the night in a tiny little shelter six feet long and five feet wide professor foot and i had to dig a shelf out of the steep hillside in order to pitch our tent the next morning not being detained by the vagaries of a mule train we made an early start as we followed the faint little trail across the gulches tributary to the river pampaconas we had to negotiate several unusually steep descents and ascents the bearers suffered from the heat they found it more and more difficult to carry their loads twice we had to cross the rapids of the river on primitive bridges which consisted only of a few little logs lashed together and resting on slippery boulders. By one o'clock we found ourselves on a small plain, elevation forty-five hundred feet, in dense woods surrounded by tree ferns, vines, and tangled thickets, through which it was impossible to see for more than a few feet. Here Guzman told us we must stop and rest awhile, as we were now in the territory of Los Salvajes, the savage Indians who acknowledged only the rule of Saavedra, and resented all intrusion. Guzman did not seem to be particularly afraid, but said that we ought to send ahead one of our carriers to warn the savages that we were coming on a friendly mission and were not in search of rubber gatherers, otherwise they might attack us or run away and disappear into the jungle. He said we should never be able to find the ruins without their help. The carrier who was selected to go ahead did not relish his task. Leaving his pack behind, he proceeded very quietly and cautiously along the trail and was lost to view almost immediately. There followed an exciting half-hour while we waited, wondering what attitude the savages would take toward us, and trying to picture to ourselves the mighty potentate, Savedra, who had been described as sitting in the midst of savage luxury, surrounded by fifty servants, and directing his myrmidons to checkmate our desires to visit the Inca city on the Pampa of Ghosts. Suddenly we were startled by the crackling of twigs and the sound of a man running, we instinctively held our rifles a little tighter in readiness for whatever might befall, when there burst out of the woods a pleasant faced young Peruvian, quite conventionally clad, who had come in haste from Saavedra, his father, to extend to us a most cordial welcome. It seemed scarcely credible, but a glance at his face showed that there was no ambush in store for us. It was with a sigh of relief that we realized there was to be no shower of poisoned arrows from the impenetrable thickets gathering up our packs we continued along the jungle trail through woods which gradually became higher deeper and darker until presently we saw sunlight ahead and to our intense astonishment the bright green of waving sugar-cane a few moments of walking through the cane-fields found us at a large comfortable hut welcomed very simply and modestly by saavedra himself a more pleasant and peaceable little man it was never my good fortune to meet We looked furtively around for his fifty savage servants, but all we saw was his good-natured Indian wife, three or four small children, and a wild-eyed maid-of-all-work, evidently the only savage present. Saavedra said some called this place Jesus Maria, because they were so surprised when they saw it. It is difficult to describe our feelings as we accepted Saavedra's invitation to make ourselves at home and sat down to an abundant meal of boiled chicken, rice, and sweet cassava, manioc. Saavedra gave us to understand that we were not only most welcome to anything he had, but that he would do everything to enable us to see the ruins, which were, it seemed, at Espiritu Pampa, some distance farther down the valley, to be reached only by a hard trail passable for barefooted savages, but scarcely available for us unless we chose to do a good part of the distance on hands and knees." the next day while our carriers were engaged in clearing this trail professor foote collected a large number of insects including eight new species of moths and butterflies i inspected saavedra's plantation the soil having lain fallow for centuries and being rich in humus had produced more sugar cane than he could grind in addition to this he had bananas coffee trees sweet potatoes tobacco and peanuts Instead of being a very powerful chief having many Indians under his control, a kind of puba, he was merely a pioneer. In the utter wilderness, far from any neighbors, surrounded by dense forests and a few savages, he had established his home. He was not an Indian potentate, but only a frontiersman, soft-spoken and energetic, an ingenious carpenter and mechanic, a modest Peruvian of the best type owing to the scarcity of arable land he was obliged to cultivate such pampas as he could find one an alluvial fan near his house another a natural terrace near the river back of the house was a thatched shelter under which he had constructed a little sugar-mill it had a pair of hardwood rollers each capable of being turned with much creaking and cracking by a large rustic wheel made of roughly hewn timbers fastened together with wooden pins and lashed with thongs worked by hand and foot power since saavedra had been unable to coax any pack animals over the trail to conservidayoc he was obliged to depend entirely on his own limited strength and that of his active son aided by the uncertain and irregular services of such savages as wished to work for sugar trinkets or other trade articles sometimes the savages seemed to enjoy the fun of climbing on the great creaking tread-wheel as though it were a game At other times, they would disappear in the woods. Near the mill were some interesting large pots which Saavedra was using in the process of boiling the juice and making crude sugar. He said he had found the pots in the jungle not far away. They had been made by the Incas. Four of them were of the familiar erebalus type. Another was of a closely related form, having a wide mouth, pointed base, single incised, conventionalized animal head nubbin attached to the shoulder and band-shaped handles attached vertically below the median line. Although capable of holding more than ten gallons, this huge pot was intended to be carried on the back and shoulders by means of a rope passing through the handles and around the nubbin. Saavedra said that he had found near his house several bottle-shaped cysts lined with stones, with a flat stone on top, evidently ancient graves. The bones had entirely disappeared, the cover of one of the graves had been pierced, the whole covered with a thin sheet of beaten silver. He had also found a few stone implements and two or three small bronze Inca axes. On the pampa, below his house, Saavedra had constructed with infinite labor another sugar-mill. It seemed strange that he should have taken the trouble to make two mills, but when one remembered that he had no pack-animals and was usually obliged to bring the cane to the mill on his own back and the back of his son, one realized that it was easier, while the cane was growing, to construct a new mill near the cane field than to have to carry the heavy bundles of ripe cane up the hill. He said his hardest task was to get money with which to send his children to school in Cusco, and to pay his taxes. The only way in which he could get any cash was by making chancaca, crude brown sugar, and carrying it on his back, fifty pounds at a time, three hard days' journey on foot up the mountain to Pampaconas or Vilcabamba, six or seven thousand feet above his little plantation. He said he could usually sell such a load for five soles, equivalent to two dollars and a half. His was certainly a hard lot, but he did not complain, although he smilingly admitted that it was very difficult to keep the trail open, since the jungle grew so fast, and the floods in the river continually washed away his little rustic bridges his chief regret was that as the result of a recent revolution with which he had had nothing to do the government had decreed that all firearms should be turned in and so he had lost the one thing he needed to enable him to get fresh meat in the forest in the clearing near the house we were interested to see a large turkey-like bird the pava de la montaña glossy black its most striking feature a high coral red comb although completely at liberty it seemed to be thoroughly domesticated it would make an attractive bird for the introduction into our southern states saavedra gave us some very black leaves of native tobacco which he had cured an inveterate smoker who tried it in his pipe said it was without exception the strongest stuff he had ever encountered so interested did I become in talking with Saavedra, seeing his plantation, and marvelling that he should be worried about taxes and have to obey regulations in regard to firearms, I had almost forgotten about the wild Indians. Suddenly our carriers ran toward the house in a great flurry of excitement, shouting that there was a savage in the bushes nearby. The wild man was very timid, but curiosity finally got the better of fear and he summoned up sufficient courage to accept Saavedra's urgent invitation that he come out and meet us. He proved to be a miserable specimen, suffering from a very bad cold in his head. It has been my good fortune at one time or another to meet primitive folk in various parts of America and the Pacific. But this man was by far the dirtiest and most wretched savage that I have ever seen. He was dressed in a long, filthy tunic, which came nearly to his ankles, It was made of a large square of coarsely woven cotton cloth, with a hole in the middle for his head. The sides were stitched up, leaving holes for the arms. His hair was long, unkempt, and matted. He had small, deep set eyes, cadaverous cheeks, thick lips, and a large mouth. His big toes were unusually long and prehensile. Slung over one shoulder, he carried a small knapsack made of coarse fiber net. Around his neck hung what at first sight seemed to be a necklace composed of a dozen stout cords securely knotted together. Although I did not see it in use, I was given to understand that when climbing trees he used this stout loop to fasten his ankles together and thus secure a tighter grip for his feet. By evening two other savages had come in, a young married man and his little sister. Both had bad colds. Saavedra told us that these Indians were Pichanguerras, a subdivision of the Campa tribe. Saavedra and his son spoke a little of their language, which sounded to our unaccustomed ears like a succession of low grunts, breathings, and gutturals. It was pieced out by signs. The long tunics worn by the men indicated that they had one or more wives. Before marrying they wear very scanty attire nothing more than a few rags hanging over one shoulder and tied about the waist. The long tunic, a comfortable enough garment to wear during the cold nights, and their only covering, must impede their progress in the jungle, yet they live partly by hunting, using bows and arrows. We learned that these pichanguerras had run away from the rubber country in the lower valleys, that they found it uncomfortably cold at this altitude, forty-five hundred feet, but preferred freedom in the higher valleys to serfdom on a rubber estate. Saavedra said that he had named his plantation Conservidayoc, because it was in truth a spot where one may be preserved from harm. Such was the home of the potentate, from whose abode no one had been known to return alive. End of section 24